Well, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 16. Last Lord's Day in row concluded with verse 20. And so we're going to pick up today and look at verses 21 through 22 and then catapult from there onto uh, a related issue. So let's read John 16, verses 21 through 22. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her, her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has, born, has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Let's pray. Fathers, we gather in your presence today and open your word. Lord, may you by your spirit open our eyes and ears to your truth. And Father, teach us, grant us faith, repentance, and strengthen our faith to live out these truths. It'd be a testament to your grace and mercy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So toward the end of the service last Lord's Day, after it got a feel for where Enro was ending, and realizing I was going to pick up from verse 21, and at the very least deal with this analogy Jesus gives, my first thought was, well, just covering this analogy is not going to, not going to be a 40-45 minute sermon. Because <clears throat> it's pretty straightforward and basic. So I, I, I <clears throat> thought I was going to have to include some more verses. But then I had a second thought. As you all know, every Lord's Day, we recite the Apostles' Creed. And one of the propositions we state that we believe is that he, that is Christ, descended into hell. And I want to share a little secret with you. I don't think I've shared this before. When I first started coming to this church back in 2012, I was only about a year and a half out of hyperpreterism. There were times when I would not say that part during church. Or I'd be like, the Lord was crucified, dead, and buried, and sent into hell. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. And the reason I was like that, because I just wasn't quite sure what we meant by that. And I didn't want to recite something I didn't understand, or, or maybe if I, even if I did understand it, maybe I would, would not have agreed with it. Well, I didn't do that for long. At some point, I remember... I think it was within six months, I did a little research and eventually came to ease my mind about it and I had no problem saying it and have said it ever since. But there are times when I wonder if there's anyone else out there like me who either doesn't say that part or perhaps you do, but while you're saying it, you're thinking to yourself, what exactly does that mean? What are we saying? Jesus descended into hell and you're just a little unsure. And then I got thinking 11 years that I've been here, I could not recall whether or not Dr. T had addressed this. Now, I did, after I did a little digging, I found out that he did touch on it, the tail end of a sermon that he did in Ephesians 4, verse 9. But he, it was just for about 10 minutes or so. I was also glad to hear that we're on the same page, because that scared me a little bit too. <laughs> But it's been a while. That was probably back in 2015. <clears throat> and I'd be willing to bet you probably don't remember what he said. So I've been thinking about it for a while. That it'd be good to address this, but I just never could find the right time to do it until now. Now, while the text today does not necessarily dive into those details, it does make reference to Jesus' death and the time after that. And given that the analogy won't take that long to address, I thought it, this would be a good time to throw this in. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. But first, let's address the analogy. As I've already mentioned, this analogy is pretty straightforward. For some context, let's go a few verses back and remind ourselves of what Jesus had said just prior. And as I'm reading this, take note of the repetition Jesus makes about leaving and as well as sending the Spirit. After explaining that the world is going to hate the disciples because they hated Christ, he goes on to say, but when the Helper comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes that you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He, he hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I, I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now for us reading this in the year 2023, after all this has already taken place, and we have a completed Bible, it doesn't seem all that difficult to figure out what Jesus is talking about here. We have the advantage of being able to look back after it has all taken place along with the rest of Scripture to figure out what Jesus is saying here. Although there are some little minor disagreements among the commentators about a few things. <clears throat> For example, when Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me, some believe, and I noticed this, this was expressed in my Reformation Heritage Study Bible, that Jesus is referring to his death, which was about to take place in a little while, and during which they would no longer see him. And then he references his resurrection, which will again take place in a little while, and at which point they will see Jesus again. Calvin, on the other hand, states that on the contrary, he mitigates and soothes their sorrow for his absence by this con consolation that it will not last long, and thus he magnifies the grace of the Spirit by which he will continually be present with them. And then he says, nor ought we to think it strange when he says that he is seen when he dwells in the disciples by the Spirit, for though he is not seen with the bodily eyes, yet his presence is known by the undoubted experience of faith. <clears throat> now, I can certainly understand why Calvin would go this route, because we, as we just heard in our reading of the context, not only is Jesus speaking of a time when he will not be physically present with them, but that time seems to coincide with the sending of the Spirit, and it's also the time when the disciples will be kicked out of synagogues and possibly even killed. And recall that he said that he is telling them this so that when the hour comes, they will remember what he told them, implying that he's not physically going to be there with them. This is all going to happen after his ascension. Now, having said that, I have questioned whether we necessarily have to exclude the resurrection from this. Because after all, it does take place within a little while. The disciples will certainly see him again before he ascends. And as John points out, they were certainly glad to see him after he rose from the dead. Interestingly, Matthew Henry says this. He says, speaking to the lost sight of Christ, he says, one, they'll lose sight of Christ at his death when he withdrew from this world and never after showed himself openly in it. And two, they will lose sight at his ascension when he withdrew from them out of their sight, a cloud received him, and they looked up steadfastly after him, and they saw him no more. And then commenting on 
them seeing Christ again. Matthew Henry says <clears throat> that they should see him again, one, at his resurrection soon after his death, which he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, and this in a very little while, not 40 hours, and two, by the pouring out of the Spirit soon after his ascension. And then he even goes on to include the return of Christ at the end of history. So for Matthew Henry, at least, it's, he doesn't seem to have a problem including all of it, and I don't necessarily have a problem with it either. All that said, keep in mind, however, that for the disciples at that moment, they weren't getting any of this. In fact, John tells us in chapter 20, verse 9, that even after Jesus was raised, that for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so while it's easy for us to grasp this, looking back after the fact, it certainly was not easy for them beforehand. They were still in the dark about the scriptures on these matters. And as a result, they were filled with sorrow upon hearing that Jesus was going to leave them. And yet, I want you to notice how our Lord, the great shepherd, treats his confused sheep. He doesn't just say to them, he doesn't just toss them to the side and say, well, you know, good luck with that. I hope you figure it out one day. No, he comforts them, even in their ignorance. And he doesn't even wait for them to ask. Perceiving that they are confused and talking amongst themselves and knowing that they wanted to ask him, he engages them and goes to them and gives them an analogy that they certainly could relate to. And this is where we read in verse 21 that when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Well, not only could they relate to this analogy, but here's something we all can relate to, especially to you moms out there. Now, it's been a while since Amanda's given birth. What's it been, like 20 years, I think? <coughs> Is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we got to relive some memories with the recent birth of our grandson. Now, I wasn't in the room when Lexi gave birth, but I got to see her not long after that. And what Jesus says here certainly rings true, and we've seen it over and over again in our experiences. You know, when a woman first finds out she's pregnant, typically, usually there's joy, you know, if they were planning on it. But then that starts to wear off a little as the months progress. The baby's getting bigger, it's becoming increasingly more uncomfortable. And as I recently saw with Lexi, she reached a point where she was like, all right, get out of me. It's time to go. She's just very uncomfortable. And as the hour gets near, the anxiety starts to kick in, especially when it's your first baby. You've heard stories about the pain of delivery from other women. You might have even witnessed it yourself. You've heard stories about wives screaming at their husband. You did this to me. I'm going to choke you. And I, so I can't even imagine what a first-time mom must be thinking leading up to those days. I mean, I certainly don't like pain. I mean, even as someone who's incapable of giving birth, I even squirm a little when I read Genesis 3.16, where God tells Eve that I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. That would make me a nervous wreck. But what happens the very moment that child comes out and is placed in your arms? All of that anguish, all that anxiety, and even a great deal of the pain is gone. And it's forgotten because you're overcome with joy at the sight of that little guy or girl. It's true of the, the man to see that. I'm sure it's even more special for the, for the woman. So one minute you're screaming bloody murder. The next minute you're sitting there on your bed with your child grinning from ear to ear. So we all get this. We can relate. Even those of us who don't have to experience that directly, as the women do, still get the point. 
And so Jesus now relates this analogy to his disciples and their situation. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Again, what a gracious thing it is for our Lord to comfort his disciples, even in the midst of their own ignorance and lack of understanding the scriptures. They're not going to be left in their sorrow. In fact, Jesus had said earlier that if it weren't for their lack of understanding, they would have rejoiced even now over what Christ revealed to them. Nonetheless, Christ promises to send them the helper, the Holy Spirit, who would teach them all things and bring to remembrance all that he has said to them, thus leading them to a peace and a joy that no nobody can take away from them. Well, I'm sure there's more that can be said here. <clears throat> And I'm sure we'll probably even rehearse some of that as we continue working through this chapter. <coughs> However, this time now, I want to segue into this issue about the descent of Christ into hell. Again, as I noted earlier, this text does not get into all those details. And so you may be thinking this is a weird place to do it. And perhaps it is. Perhaps I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But as I mentioned, I've been looking at this for a time for a time to do it. And given the fact that Jesus is now making reference to his death and what follows, I thought this would be a good time to bring it up. Plus, once we see what all this talk is about, we'll see that it actually has some very practical implications for us today as it relates to our own sorrows and joy. Reciting the words that Jesus descended into hell may seem like for us an occasion for sorrow. But in reality, it is a great source of hope and joy for the believer. Well, first of all, let's do a little historical part here. It certainly can be admitted that the exact words, he descended into hell, are not found in our Bible. Yet we recite and affirm this belief every week when reciting the Apostle Creed. We say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. Why the Apostles' Creed? Well, the Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest and most widely accepted universal statements of the Christian faith. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it traditionally is believed to have contained the essential teachings of the Apostles. Some even argue it was written by the Apostles. The Roman Catholic, some of the Roman Catholics argue that, but we don't go that far. And while this particular phrase in the creed is not without its controversy, the fact is, is that both Roman Catholic and Protestant churches, as well as Eastern Orthodox, have embraced this creed and this clause. Within our own Protestant reform tradition, this endorsement is evident, for instance, in documents like the Heidelberg Catechism, which elucidates the Apostles' Creed and considers the clause an integral component of our, quote, undoubted Christian faith, unquote. John Calvin, whose institutes of the Christian religions were framed based on the Apostles' Creed, stated that we must not admit the descent to hell, which was of, little, no, which was of no little importance to the accomplishment of redemption. For although it is apparent from the writings of the ancient fathers that the clause which now stands in the creed was not formally so much used in the churches, still in giving a summary of doctrine, a place must be assigned to it as containing a matter of great importance which ought not by any means to be disregarded. Indeed, some of the ancient fathers do admit it. <coughs> and hence we may conjecture that having been inserted in the creed after a considerable lapse of time, it came into use in the church, not immediately, but by degrees. This much is uncontroverted that it was in accordance with the general sentiment of all believers since there is none of the fathers who does not mention Christ's descent into hell, though they have various modes of explaining it. But it is of little consequence by whom and at what time it was introduced. The chief thing to be attended to in the creed is that it furnishes us with a full and every way complete summary of faith containing nothing but what has been derived from the infallible word of God but should any still scruple to give it admission into the creed, it will shortly be made plain that the place the place which it holds 
and a summary of our redemption is so important that the admission of it greatly detracts from the benefits of Christ's death. The Apostles' Creed has been used in the traditional structure of Reformed churches for the observance of the Lord's Supper, which is how we do it here in our order of worship. In the context of each Lord's Supper ceremony, many churches typically read the following preamble before reciting the Creed. May we, by this Holy Supper, also be strengthened in the Catholic, undoubted Christian faith of which we make profession with heart and mouth, saying, and then they recite the Creed. The Belgic Confession, another Reformed Confession, in defending the doctrine of the Trinity against Jews, Muslims, and various false Christian and heretics, states, quote, we do willingly, willingly receive the three creeds, namely that of the apostles of Nicene and of Athanasius, likewise that which conformable thereunto is agreed upon by the ancient fathers. And then we have our own subordinate standards, the Westminster Standards where we embrace the clause, explaining its meaning in larger catechism question number 50, which we'll come back to. So it's fairly obvious that this creed has a special place in Christian tradition and even our Reformed tradition, and I believe rightly so. As one who came out of the heresy of hyperpreterism, I was involved in a group that pretty much said, well, who needs the creeds? You know, poop, poop on them. And, of course, we did that because we were teaching a great deal of stuff that conflicted with the creeds. That's why we didn't want them. But I have since come to greatly appreciate the Reformers' desire to link with the historic church. And I think that is something that we should never take lightly. Yet, having said that, there certainly is a great deal of controversy surrounding this particular clause in the creed that Christ ascended into hell. And that controversy is understandable. For starters, that clause is not found in every version of the creed. What we now call and accept as the Apostles' Creed, keep in mind that it developed over time. <clears throat> the creed had its origins in an old Roman creed from the 4th century. And before that, in what scholars refer to as the Proto-Romanum, a 3rd century creed. It also finds its roots in ancient church writings such as Ignatius around 107. But it wasn't until the era of Charlemagne, which is 8th century, that the creed was formally codified. Philip Schaff, his work on the creeds is, is helpful in this regard. He has a chart where he has all the various clauses divided at the top. And then over on the left-hand corner column, he has the various forms of the Apostles' Creed throughout history, and then he shows where each clause, whether it appears in that form or not. And when you look at it, using the ultimate text of the Western Creed, which was dated AD 750 as the baseline, you'll notice that the descent into hell clause is missing from St. Irenaeus, Tertullian, St. Cyprian, Novatian, and Marcellus. And it isn't until AD 390 with Rufinus, I guess that's how you say his name, then it appears. After that, it doesn't appear with St. Augustine and Eusebius. In fact, it doesn't reappear, at least in this chart, until A.D. 650. Now, keep in mind, it doesn't mean that these men were not teaching any doctrine about Christ's descent. The point is, is that in many of these ancient creedal versions, they did not include the clause. And everybody that you read points this out, just about. Furthermore, the clause is not used in the Nicene Creed, which is another widely accepted universal ecumenical creed. It's not there at all. And then even the Athanasian Creed, it contains the clause, but interestingly, it admits the words that Christ was buried. And so it reads, Who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. And so this is suggested to many that the phrase descended into hell is just another way of saying that he was buried. It's just a substitute. Rufinus, who wrote one of the first commentaries on the Apostles' Creed, stated that in the creed of the Roman church, we should notice the words descended to hell are not added. Nor, for that matter, does the clause feature in the Eastern churches. 
Its meaning, however, appears to be precisely the same as that contained in the affirmation buried. Which leads us to another issue, and that is of the wording. You know, in English, when we say he descended into hell, what's usually the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word hell? You usually think about that final place where the wicked will suffer for eternity. But this raises some questions. One, the ancient creeds were not written in English. They were written in Latin and Greek. And so is hell a proper translation of the Latin and Greek? And secondly, even if we insist on using the English word hell, should we always understand that word to mean the final place where the wicked will suffer? Again, Shaft is helpful here. He states that the Greek and Latin words used correspond here to, uh, or he states that the Greek and Latin words used correspond here to the Greek word Hades, which occurs 11 times in the Greek Testament and is always incorrectly translated hell in the English version. Hades signifies, like the Hebrew, Hebrew word Sheol, the unseen spirit world, the abode of all the departed, both the righteous and wicked while hell, probably from the Saxon word helen, to cover, to conceal, at least in modern usage, is a much narrower, narrower conception and signifies the state and place of eternal damnation, like the Hebrew Gehenna, which occurs 12 times in the Greek New Testament and is so translated in the English Bible. So you can see why this is a mess to deal with. And I even told Indro midweek, I, like, I might have bitten off more than I could chew this week. <laughs> You have the fact that the clause was not used in all the creeds. In fact, it's not even found in all the various versions of the Apostles' Creed. And even in some places where it's used, it's used without the other clause that he was buried, implying that it may be used as a substitute. And furthermore, even among those who adopt the clause, there's the question of how exactly we should word it and explain its meaning. Given the fact that the Latin and Greek do not necessarily correspond to the English word hell as we typically Think of it. The words Sheol and Hades have been understood in various ways, and as a result, a descent into Sheol and Hades has been interpreted in various ways. In fact, William Perkins, who's oftentimes nicknamed the father of Puritanism, he presented four perspectives on Christ's descent into hell. One, it may signify a literal descent to a specific location. Two, it served as a synonym for being buried. Three, it functioned as a metaphor denoting Christ's sufferings. Or four, it was a way of expressing his continued submission to the curse of death. And then a generation later, Daniel Featley addressed the Westminster Assembly, echoing basically this same order. And he noted that these perspectives stood in contrast to the Roman Catholic belief of the limbo of the Old Testament fathers and of purgatory. According to Featley, these options were considered valid for Orthodox Reformed theologians. So perhaps now you can see why some would just rather drop the clause altogether, especially since the clause is never explicitly used in the Bible to start with. In fact, this became even a huge debate within the Westminster Assembly. I found a footnote uh, John Lightfoot's uh, journals on the assembly, he actually wrote about this. And uh, I was like, man, I got to get my hands on this, the whole work. And I found out it was like 250 bucks. So I don't celebrate Christmas, but anyone wants to buy me a gift. Um, he points out how this was just a huge debate in the assembly. It was massive. One of the bigger debates that they had. But I agree with the words of Mark Jones, who noted, I think we should be very careful about excising phrases from the ecumenical creeds, especially when our churches can enjoy an interpretation that is sound and orthodox. Our Reformed forefathers did this and also spoke very strongly against rejecting that part of the creed, which is one reason why our church confesses the whole creed. Now, we could certainly spend a great deal of time going through all the various perspectives and pointing out their strengths and weaknesses, but I don't have time for that. Instead, I just want to consider the two views 
that have been adopted by the reform, generally speaking. And just so you know, at this point, I'm heavily leaning on Daniel Hyde's book in defense of the dissent. I was telling Carrie earlier, I don't know how many books I've read this week, a lot. Perkins, Lightfoot, Calvin, uh, J.D. Kelly, Herman Vitzius, Joe Moorcraft, which actually took a very strange view. It really surprised me. A few others. <coughs> but I think Daniel does a very fair and decent job here, if you ever want to look into this for yourself. Now, there's definitely some distinction between Calvin's view and, say, that of a William Perkins. Calvin's view is expressed in places such as the Heidelberg Catechism, whereas Perkins' view would be reflected in our Westminster Standards. And these two views may seem incompatible, but as Hyde argues, we could simply see them as two sides to the same coin. And after hearing Dr. Talbot on it, found out he basically took the same approach. In terms of how we should understand the words, he descended into hell, I do believe that the Westminster Standards do a better job because it maintains what is likely a chronological order, that is, Christ died, was buried, descended into hell, then resurrected. That said, while Calvin's view, which would mess up the chronology, is not expressed in our standards as being an explanation for that clause specifically, you can certainly argue that his theology is contained in our standards. And that's why I said that I can agree with Hyde that really we can embrace both of these views. So what is the Reformed view with these two sides of the same coin? Well, we can express it succinctly as concerning the body of Jesus Christ, he descended into the state of death. And regarding the soul of Jesus Christ, he endured the torments of hell. And this was essentially Herman Vitzius' view who stated, when we profess that Christ descended into hell, the expression is to be referred, we apprehend, partly to the body and partly to the soul. Even Calvin appears to bring these two views together in his catechism, the church in Geneva. He says, he descended into hell. What does this mean? <clears throat> that he not only endured common death, which is the separation of the soul from the body, but also pain, also the pains of death, as Peter calls them in Acts 2.24. By this expression, I understand the fearful agonies by which his soul was pierced. So first, let's consider one side, this explanation concerning the body of Jesus Christ, which descended into the state of death. Again, as we noted, this is explicitly conveyed in our catechism, a larger catechism, question and answer 50. It states, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of death and under the power of death till the third day which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. <clears throat> Regarding this physical aspect, it is certainly the case that the Lord Jesus Christ descended into the tomb and entered into the state of death, thus fulfilling the prophecies of old, the Old Testament as the anticipated Messiah. We see this notably in Psalm 16, verses 8 and 10. For the psalmist writes, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16 should not be interpreted as dismissing the idea of Christ's descent, as signifying his burial, burial into the state of death. Furthermore, Psalm 16 does not imply a literal descent of Christ into hell, as the New Testament provides a spirit-inspired interpretation of Psalm 16. 
The apostles, Peter and Paul, in their application of this text, connect it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, not from hell. This stands in contrast to David, whose tomb is with us to this day. David's body did not go off into an intermediate realm of blessing or punishment. Instead, his body stayed in the tomb in the condition of death, under the dominion of death, even to this day, said Peter. Well, now this brings us to the meaning of Sheol or Hades. <coughs> the term Sheol and its equivalent in the New Testament, Hades, can actually be interpreted in three different ways, depending on the context in which they're used. Firstly, Sheol or Hades can denote the conceptual state of death rather than a specific physical location. For instance, in Psalm 917, it describes the wicked nations boasting of their power, but ultimately facing destruction by death. It says the wicked shall be turned into hell, or as the ESV states, shield. Psalm 5515 uses shield in conjunction with death to signify an abrupt demise, saying, let death still over them, let them go down to shield alive. And in Genesis 37:35, among other scriptures, uses Sheol metaphorically to convey the idea of death. There it says, And all his sons and in all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And given that both believers and unbelievers experience a state of death, both groups can be said to enter Sheol or Hades. Consider, for example, example, Psalm 89, verse 48. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Secondly, when Sheol or Hades is used to describe an actual physical location, it may be indicating simply the grave. Take, for example, Psalm 49, verse 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I've never heard anyone argue that sheep die and go to some netherworld to suffer. And yet, like sheep, we are appointed for Sheol. So clearly then, I think this is referring to the grave. Thirdly, <coughs> when Sheol or Hades is used to denote a physical place, it may also be referencing hell, that is what we typically think, the realm of eternal punishment for the ungodly. An example of this is Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. For a fire, fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And so it is with the English term hell. When we encounter the term, we should not immediately interpret it as solely the location of eternal punishment, as it can represent only one of three possible meanings. Now, back to Psalm 16. How then should we understand Sheol or Hades in Psalm 16? Well, there I believe it should be interpreted as a literal grave. This understanding is supported by the usage of the term in Acts 2. In these verses, as we've already pointed out, Peter draws a distinction between David, whose body both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, and he contrasts that with Christ, who was resurrected from the dead, emerging from his tomb. Additionally, the term translated as soul in Psalm 16.10 is frequently employed as an idiom for the person, uh, the person pronoun me in Scripture. In other words, you can refer to a person, a whole person, as, as a soul. In Psalm 16.10, when David declares, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, what he essentially is saying is, "Thou, for thou wilt not leave me in Sheol. 
To be more precise, me refers to David's lifeless body, which is what Peter points out in Acts 2. Lastly, in Psalm 1610, the parallelism is evident between the term soul and holy one on one side and between hell and corruption on the other. The soul of David is likened to the Holy One of the Lord, just as me and Sheol is connected to the corruption. Here, the corruption David speaks of pertains to the decay of the body within the grave. And the fulfillment of this prophecy required the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this interpretation of Psalm 16 suggests that when Jesus' body was laid to rest, his human soul did not descend into hell, that is, some place of punishment for the wicked, but rather ascended to his Father. And this aligns with Jesus' words on the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Furthermore, if you recall, Jesus would later assure the repentant thief on the cross that upon death they would be together in paradise. In Luke 23, 43, he tells the thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus' soul and body are separated, which is death. And that body is buried. The soul leaves to paradise. And in such state, Christ continues in the state of death and under the power of death until he is resurrected on the third day. And this is what our catechism says. This is what we mean when we say that he descended into hell. Well, now let's consider the other view, and that of Calvin's more metaphorical view. <clears throat> this perspective is held by many Reformed authors in confessional writings like the Heidelberg Catechism. In the 67th question and answer of his catechism in Geneva, John elucidated the reasons and method behind Christ's descent into hell. He said, as in order to satisfy for sinners, he summoned himself before the tribunal of God. It was necessary that he should suffer excruciating agony of conscience, as if he had been forsaken of God, nay, as it were, had God hostile to him. He was in this agony when he exclaimed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Calvin later states, he did not endure it so as to remain under it, for though he was seized with the terrors I have mentioned, he was not overwhelmed. Rather, wrestling with the power of hell, he subdued and crushed it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, if you look at our standards, they don't use this language to explain the clause he descended into hell. But the theology that Calvin teaches is certainly in our standards. <coughs> For example, in chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, it says, This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it. He endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul. That's Calvin and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and was buried and remained under the power of death. That's the larger catechism, question 50. And yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, which he also ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. You could also look at larger catechisms, questions 38 and 49. 38 says, why was it required that the mediator should be God? It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature, that is of Christ, from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. And then in question 49, which precedes question 50, which deals directly with the descent clause, our catechism asks this, how did Christ humble himself in his death? Christ humbled himself in his death, and that having been betrayed by Judas, 
forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate and tortured by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath. Again, that's Calvin. He laid down his life in offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. So again, while our larger catechism provides the ancient historical and literary interpretation of the clause, he descended into hell, noting that it refers to his burial and continuing in the state of death until his resurrection, <coughs> the Heidelberg Catechism and other reform documents offer a theological and practical understanding. They convey that the descent is a metaphor symbolizing this intense agony and the profound sufferings of our mediator and savior, which our standards also include, just not explicitly as their way of interpreting the words, he shall descend into hell. According to men like Calvin and Vitius, the inclusion of the descent clause in the Apostles' Creed is a way in which God communicates with us using language that we can understand. Just like in your everyday interactions, we often adopt our language or adapt our language metaphorically, especially when expressing excitement or despondency. For instance, during moments of joy, you might say, I feel like I'm on cloud nine. Conversely, in times of despair, you might occasionally express in your intense agony that you almost feel like you're experiencing hell. I want to also add here that Calvin was very careful to make a distinction here. When you read some like John Lightfoot, who actually didn't really like this view, stating that we cannot adhere to the idea that Christ suffered God's wrath, as if it suggests that God was angry with Christ, or just treating him like any ordinary sinner. Calvin writes, we do not, however, insinuate that God was ever hostile to him or angry with him. How could he be angry with the beloved son with whom his soul was well pleased? Or how could he have appeased the father by his intercession for others if he were hostile to himself? But this we say, that he bore the weight of the divine anger, that smitten and afflicted he experienced all the signs of an angry and avenging God. And of course, he did that for us because of our sins not his. So to grasp then the Reformed interpretation from these two perspectives, it's insightful to consider the insights of Caspar Olivianus, who was one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. He asserted that the phrases suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, refer to Christ's visible sufferings while the phrase he descended into hell pertains to his unseen sufferings. He further explained that Christ's invisible sufferings were essential because he had to endure suffering for our salvation in both body and soul. And in this, Casper aligned with Calvin, who stated, the point is that the creed sets forth what Christ suffered in the sight of men and then appropriately seeks of that invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he underwent in the sight of God. This helps us understand not only that Christ's body was given at, as the price of our redemption, but also that he paid a greater and more excellent price in suffering in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man. So those are the two views. And like I said, I think they complement one another. I don't think you have to choose between one or the other. Well, then finally, let's conclude then with some application. And for this, I want to quote Herman Vitius in length because he just, he writes it so well. He says, let us now inquire what advantage the consideration of these agonies can afford us. And doubtless, it tends to shake off the torpors of carnal security. Nowhere are the malignity of sin and the severity of God's wrath against it 
more clearly discerned than in the Lord's descent into hell. Go, sinner, to Mount Olive. Behold Christ rolling in the dust. See that brave prince stretched out on the ground, that generous lion of the tribe of Judah prostrate on the earth. Hear him, who is the only consolation of wounded spirits, and even the God of our exceeding joy, complaining bitterly of sorrow surrounding him on every side. See the drops of blood with which owing to the incredible anguish of his soul his sacred body is stained. Here the supplications offered up with strong crying and tears to his father. Ask the Savior, what was the real cause of anguish so immense when hitherto no hostile bands, no chains, no scourge, no accusers, no judge, no cross were even present? When on the contrary, he was in a pleasant garden and at no great distance from his faithful disciples. Ask this and you will learn that those very sins which you have hitherto regarded so lightly were the causes of his unparalleled sorrows. Those very sins now laid on Christ, afflicted and weighed him down and failed only to overwhelm him utterly. And can anyone presume that either no atonement for sin is necessary or that a slight, a very slight atonement is, or satisfaction is sufficient? You could not, O oh man, most certainly could, you could not make satisfaction to God, although you should come before him with burnt offerings or with calves of a year old or with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil. No, if you should even give your firstborn for your transgression and the fruit of your body for the sin of your soul, Behold, behold, I beseech you, behold again and again the inconceivable bitterness of those sufferings which Christ endured when he bore the transgressions of the elect in order to expiate their guilt. And then Vitius turns to those who are in Christ and argues that his agonies supply us with abundant matter of consolation, and he gives three reasons why. One, he underwent the pains of hell in their stead, that they might not have to undergo them. He entered the palace of the strong man armed, namely the devil, but being stronger than he, he took from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divided his spoils. Oh, the incredible compassion of our Lord. Oh, the bowels of his love. He plunged himself into a deep abyss of infernal pains that through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we, the prisoners, might be set forth out of the pit wherein is no water, not the smallest refreshing drop. We have now no cause to tremble at the assaults of the devil, for while he bruised Christ's heel, Christ bruised his head. Secondly, he has obtained for them the heavenly glory. He shed a bloody sweat for us that in the cold sweat of death we might have access with boldness unto God. He drank the dreads of divine wrath out of the cup of suffering that an overflowing cup of divine grace might be administered to us and that we might be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of his house and drink of the river of his pleasures. He began to fear and tremble that we might stand undismayed before the tribunal of God. He fell on his face for our sins, that we might lift our heads. 
he offered up his supplications, so to speak, to an inexorable deity that we might always be heard in those prayers which we present in his name. He was forsaken by God that we might never be forsaken. And fine, because he descended into hell, the principal gate of heaven stands wide open to us, and the lower his descent, the higher in consequence is the glory which he has merited for us. And then thirdly, he has secured comfort for his people, even amidst the sorrows of a wounded spirit. It cannot be denied that the godly themselves have sometimes their hour of darkness in which they are harassed by the devil, tormented with fears of hell, and are apt to complain that they are forsaken by God. Yet even then they may derive consolation from the agonies of Christ. And he gives a few reasons why. One, because nothing befalls them which has not befallen their Lord before to whose image it is fit that they should be conformed in sufferings, that they may be conformed to him also in glory. What could be more unbecoming than to refuse to drink the cup of which the Savior has drunk before us? Two, by the sorrows of Christ, the sting of the curse is entirely taken away from their sorrows. God does not expose them to such distresses as an angry judge but as a kind and judicious, judicious father for the exercise of their faith, patience, hope, and charity. He does not desert to the believer that he may be deserted, but deserts him that he may not be deserted. And he appears to forsake because he is unwilling to forsake him. And third, they have to do with an enemy over whom Christ has already triumphed nor can the conflict fail to be glorious and one from which they shall come forth more than conquerors. Light shall arise after darkness. This violent tempest shall be succeeded by a calm serenity, delightful in proportion to the severity with, with which the thunders and the storm may have raged. And fourth, the very bitterness and fine of that condition will impart a double sweetness to the succeeding joys as well of grace as of glory. To have passed from death to life gives a double relish to the blessing of life. And then finally, Vitius goes on, learn in that last place then in what manner you ought to conduct yourself when visited with such sorrows. So here comes the practical part of it. He says, one, be, beware of an immoderate fondness for places of retirement favorable to a sorrow which gradually becomes a kind of mischievous pleasure to the unhappy mind. After you have poured forth your complaints in secret into the bosom of God, return at intervals to the, to the society of your acquaint, acquaintances and friends. In other words, don't run off and exclude yourself from everybody soaking in your sorrows and dwelling in your sorrows. Confess those to God and then return to your friends and acquaintances, to your church family. Second, be unwearied in prayer. Some forms of prayer suited to your condition are contained in the Psalms. Psalm 77, Psalm 88, Psalm 102, and several other Psalms. A form of the same sort, purely adapted to the troubled soul, and uncommonly pathetic, you will also find in a valuable little book he recommends by Thomas Goodwin, The Child of Light Walking in Darkness. Third, lay aside all murmuring and renouncing the reasoning of the flesh and the inclination of your own will, commit yourself entirely to God and always subject your own wishes to his sovereign, most wise and most excellent will. Having protested that while you desire that, if it be possible, the cup may pass from you, you do not refuse, if necessary, to drink it up to the bottom, if it be conducive to the glory of God and to your own ultimate advantage. And in fourth and last, wait in patience and in faith, till he who at last heard the prayers of Christ and delivered him from fear 
both affording him strength to sustain his sorrows and making him victorious over all adversaries, so shall also manifest his sympathy for you under your distresses and refresh you with the fullness of his consolations. He who now seems to stand at a distance from you will doubtless return. Sooner or later, he will return. And to adopt very nearly the expressions of Augustine, who said, quote, interrupting you possibly in the midst of your prayers, he will impart himself speedily to the longing soul and being covered with the dew of celestial sweetness and anointed with fragrant ointments, will refresh the weary, satisfy the hungry, and enrich the indigent soul, and by his liberal communications, restore it to health and vigor. So in summary, <clears throat> retaining the clause, he descended into hell in the creed, is deemed essential for the Reformed churches and their members. This expression aligns with Old Testament prophecies concerning the burial and resurrection of Christ, which forms the bedrock of our assurance. The phrase rooted in biblical principles and histories connects present-day believers to the broader Protestant tradition and the historic Catholic faith. And despite the various interpretations of this clause and other elements within the Apostles' Creed, we as Reformed believers employ the language of the Western Church to affirm our Catholicity and align ourselves with a multitude of believers throughout history. By professing, I believe, he descended into hell, we partake in the genuine Christian comfort experienced by countless believers uniting our voices before the throne of grace. Let's pray.